Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Gildas, and this is New Books Network. I have the great pleasure of hosting Joseph Russo today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Joseph. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for writing this beautifully written book. I enjoyed reading it immensely. And yeah, I mean, before we go into the book, maybe uh, we can start, but uh, maybe you can introduce yourself a little for those who don't know you. Yes, of course. Um, I'm Joey Russo. Um, I'm an anthropologist working here in the US. Um, I focus on the rural U.S. Um, and my work began with a dissertation um, on storytelling forms um, in rural Southeast Texas, um, and I was sort of looking at the way that ways that the stories connected to contemporary conditions of life um, in relation to a, a number of different aspects. Um, and since then, I've focused a bit more on um, politics and specifically conspiracy theory in the United States, which kind of organically grew out of what I was doing for the dissertation. So that's more what I'm looking at now. Um, but it's it's very much informed by um, my dissertation work and and um, the the interests I had, um, which originally, brought me to anthropology. And I mean, I wanted to also ask you, how did you find yourself in Southeast Texas? What's the story behind the book? How did you decide to work on this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a very personal story. I I was in graduate school for a completely different discipline in London. Uh, I was doing cultural studies and I was kind of having misgivings about the discipline. I I was becoming more and more interested in doing qualitative research and working with people. Um, I've always been someone who kind of recorded people's stories and um, oral histories. And I had a partner who was from this region and he began bringing me to Southeast, rural Southeast Texas, um, I wanna say back in 2007 or 2008. And I sort of naturally began recording the stories of his family, uh, one of whom appears in the book as Butch. It was his uncle who owned a gay club in Beaumont, Texas for many years. And I was really fascinated by his stories, particularly. The dissertation originally was about rural queer sexualities in the United States. And... Um, that was my focus. I ended up transferring back to the United States to uh, to University of Texas after um, reaching out to Kathleen Stewart, um, 
who was someone that I, whose work I read in London and fell in love with and reached out to her via email. And she ended up taking me on as a, as a PhD student. Um, and she happened to be at the University of Texas, only about four or five hours drive from where I was interested in doing the research. <laughs> so it kind of all came together. And once I left to go do my official fieldwork leave, um, I began living in trailer parks and RV parks in the region. And I realized quite quickly that there was so much more happening in this world that I felt I couldn't just focus on queer sexualities. I kind of had a crisis and I, I remember calling Katie Stewart up and saying, I, you know, I don't know what to do. Everyone here is religious and there's so much going on with health and illness and cancer. And, she said to me, you know, uh, just write it all, um, which I think is a probably more untraditional uh, piece of advice <laughs> to get from a PhD advisor, but I was lucky to have her. She's she's like one in a million. Um, and so I did. And in the end, the book kind of became a, a, a broader survey of these storytelling forms across a wider variety of, of components of ordinary life, which is something... Um, I became really interested in through Katie, through through the work we were doing um, in the program. And in the end, the book was a reflection of, of that kind of expansion um, into into all of those worlds. And I mean, it, it's not like queerness kind of is not in the book as well. Like just to clarify, like it's still a major component of the book. And you got this uh, honorary mention from the Ruth Benedict Prize, which is also congratulations, first of all. Um, and I mean, I wanted to come back to the name of the book, which is Hard Luck and Heavy Rain. What are hard luck stories? You you refer to these stories as hard luck stories in the book, and I was wondering what brings them together. Yeah, so I think about these hard luck stories um, as forms of verbal art, something I got from the work of Richard Bauman, another really famous folklorist in the US. Um, and I, at first, was just really entertained and um, moved by the stories themselves. <clears throat> but I began to connect them to um, more, more specifically the conditions of life under late capitalism in the US. Um, and I thought about them as kind of um, reflecting expressively reflecting the sort of conditions of, of death or, or the, the force of death as a kind of poetic force always sort of looming around us um, that ends up being verbalized and, and really performed in the, in the storytelling forms there. So I, I saw them then not only as entertaining, but also as these almost kind of diag diagnoses of um, how life is affecting human beings today and really kind of perfect um, tidbits or pieces of data, right, for the anthropologist who's, we love stories so much. And it's, it's um, these are anecdotal, but they're also really un almost universally relatable, I found in most cases. Um, so for me, it's very much about the poetics of death. I talk <clears throat> a little bit in the book about jo Joyelle McSweeney's concept of the necropastoral, which is something I that really resonated with me. I felt that 
these these stories were ex- deeply entrenched in that idea, right? That man's experience of nature and also of the social, I think, to extend that can't be separated from his um, experience of the, the the degradation of, of those conditions, right? So it's kind of a, a, a performance, uh, an imminent kind of performance of the experience of death that we as human beings today feel, you know, uh, surrounded by at a, at a variety of levels, right? Socially, uh, in terms of class, in terms of our environment, our politics. Um, so for me, it's it's like like many forms of really beautiful, intense art, um, something that uh, uh, directly um, responds to um, the sort of ordinary forms of suffering that we all find ourselves in. And I mean, you, in telling this story, you take us from, I don't know, the kind of the stories from about environmental damage and disease to queer theory in the rural with Christian fundamentalism and conspiracy theories. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of how these things come together and maybe the kind of the dramaturgy of the book itself? Yeah. Yeah, I I felt that it was important to somehow illustrate this thing that we talk about right so much in the discipline, which is is more or less the complexity or the or the the different scales of life that all subjects kind of um, experience. So you know when I when I got into the field and I realized okay I'm meeting queer people but I'm also meeting queer people who are right wing who are really into guns who are very religious who are who are politically. Um, uh standing in a very different place than i am i wanted to find a way to unpack and and kind of look at these different levels right no one is simply moving through the world as a kind of singular univocal subject there are all of these um uh, impingements and 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 forces and components of life that are always kind of like seeping in right and so i i my attempt there and i think you know, I sort of got it in certain parts, um, was to, to, to illustrate that through the writing itself. I wanted the writing to kind of become an infected, as it were, by like these ideas and these feelings and to show, um, not only to tell, but to show how the atmosphere literally is like seeping into the, into the lungs, but also the, the experiences, the consciousnesses of, of these, of these people, right? who I, I try to write as specifically as I can, but I, I also didn't want to suggest that this was a kind of totally exceptional experience. Um, I, I wanted to, to keep it sort of relatable. So um, thinking about how these things all sort of connect, right? I mean, people are very much products of the regions that they're, that they're born into. And, and for this, you know, queer person from the Northeast who had this very particular idea of, for instance, queer identity, it was a shock at first, I think, to even, first of all, discover that there was a queer community in this region that I had always been told was so conservative and so regressive and all of these sorts of things. But it also made me um, question and redefine um, the idea of what queer identity does, right? And and not thinking of it all, always as this rejectionist kind of cleaving away from the normative and all of these things we learn right when we read our classic queer theory, but thinking about it more as a subjectivity that forms within 
the um, embedded within the atmosphere of its own pain, its own persecution, and to think about the kind of power there, right? To think about, well, if queerness is not this thing that separates all the time, but is something we can find in the social body, right? In which then the norm itself has to look at itself and question its own kind of like uh, uh, solid, uh, uh, solid um, position. For me, that was amazing to see a person who had these elements of belief and even appearance and ways of speaking that seemed to me to contain both sides, as it were, of, let's say, the stance on queerness, right? Or even the stance on secularism and religiosity or the stance on right and left. Um, and I tried to think about that as a kind of... Um, in the dissertation, I, I thought about it through social ecology. I thought about it as a kind of gnarled ecology, right? So subjects are gnarled into this uh, this this way of being. Um, and despite the fact that I I see it in everyone now, I felt that it was extremely expressively kind of conveyed in a lot of the folks I was meeting out in Southeast Texas. So I kind of took it as a as, a, as an opportunity and a wake up call, right? Just for my own thinking, you know, we're in this moment of Trumpism and so forth, where we have gone back to the tribalism, we've gone back to the sort of um, the, the belief or the perception that there are strictly defined, rigidly bound categories of political subjects in the United States who are sworn enemies of one another and so on and so forth. And so it was a way not only of humanizing subjects that we might uh, uh, see um, outside of that, but um, making it making the connections between us um, a little bit more um, foregrounding them a little bit was was sort of my idea, right? So yeah, we've got religion and we've got different sorts of ideas about health and illness and food and nature, sexuality, religion. Um, but they are, um, rather than being, uh, let's say, paradoxical or illogical, I was trying to think about them more as simply the real, the real kind of forms of, of, of ordinary life. You know, people are products of these mega complex uh, discourses and stuff. So, um, in the end, that was kind of the form I, the book took. It was, let's go through, the, the stories will connect everything, but let's go through these different sort of little pockets and see what we find in them, you know. And I mean, one of the things that struck me too, what, the most was the kind of, I mean, it really reads like a, like literature, literature. It's it has this really literary quality, but at the same time makes these very theoretical arguments. How did you kind of found, find this balance in writing? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I I really appreciate that reading, and I it it makes me feel better that maybe that some of my intentions were were conveyed successfully in the book. I mean, you know, I always had the inclination to write and to narrativize the experiences that I was having in this way. And I think, you know, I have this long 
I had this long, you know, uh, experience meandering through the academy and 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 trying to find my place. And it wasn't really until I met Katie Stewart that I had a mentor who encouraged the synthesis of my more literary creative uh, writing interests and theoretical interests. You know, I I I really do have to thank her for her writing seminars, which you know anyone who's ever taken a, a course with with Katie can tell you, she foregrounds the writing above everything else. And she listens, you know, her classes are, are run as writing workshops. And so she listens really actively to the reading. We all read like 500 words a week. And um, she tells you these incredible things about your writing and thinking that you're going, oh my gosh, that was buried somewhere. Wow, you know, she sort of pulled it out of me. So over the course of the few years before I went to do the field work, I was developing and being really encouraged by my mentor to, to synthesize that writing, um, those, those different forms of thinking and writing. Um, and yeah, you know, it remains a, a rather controversial approach in the discipline. I always say we're like this discipline of leftists who have a very conservative approach to method, right? Um, so I was very lucky to have that, that kind of guidance. And then once the dissertation was written and I began the process of, of sort of transforming it into a book manuscript, which took me about a year, um, I really leaned into it. I was revisiting a lot of my favorite, you know, Southern writers. I was, I was revisiting James Agee. I was revisiting Carson McCullers and uh, uh, um, Faulkner and so forth. And, and um, I sort of leaned into the voices that were remaining with me from the field. You know, I had hours and hours of footage, um, audio from, from my friends and informants in Southeast Texas. And I was hearing the kind of poetic resonances in their work, in their words. And I thought it would be such a shame to, to sterilize this. It would be such a shame to write something um, that foregrounds detachment and impartiality when I, I was so, um, not only are the words themselves so beautifully, you know, so poetic in and of themselves, but I was transformed by these experiences. You know, these weren't just people for me who I left. They, they were friends. They were family. You know, there are people who I still speak to today. Many of, many of them from the book have passed away. Um, but for me, it was a kind of homage to the place. You know, it was, it was, what, it was what I felt the experience um, deserved uh, uh, as a response. Um, and also, I mean... Um, some of the things, I mean, some of the locales in the book, uh, having read the kind of introduction, I kind of expected, right? Like the church, the, I don't know, the trailer park. What's, what really stood out for me was the kind of the supplement story um, and the stories you tell from the supplement store. Can you tell us a bit about that as well? Like, how did you find yourself there? And I mean, because I don't know, like when I think about, of course, what my prejudice studies, Texas, I don't think about this health craze like like I would think of it in California, let's say, but not, you know, uh, how did that happen? Yeah, exactly. That was another shock for me. <laughs> we have a health food store in Beaumont, Texas. Well, to be totally honest, it happened because I didn't get any funding. <laughs> so, so I like, you know, I applied to all of these grants that, that we're taught to, that we're told we have to apply to. Of course, then they don't teach you how to do it. Um, 
not to be shady, but um, I didn't get funding to do field work, right? So I had to work the whole time that I was living in the RV park. And um, I didn't really know where to get a job. So I, I, I drove over to this health food store that we had that we had gone to, you know, my partner and I, when we were there um, and I kind of just walked in and, and I was very honest. I said, listen, I'm an anthropologist. I'm here from Austin. Uh, I need work. I, I hope maybe I can try to incorporate what I'm doing into the job. And they all, they kind of just went, yeah, okay. We don't know what you're talking about, but you can start by stocking these things. And then as I began to work there, they became a little bit more clear about what I was doing and agreed often um, when I was when I was recording. Um, that usually happened outside of work or in different contexts. Um, but I was really blown away by, again, that gnarled subjectivity that I was finding there where, you know, like for instance, my mom is is very into alternative medicine. She's a holistic nurse, but she's also, you know, a committed leftist. And so to hear the discursive element of why they were choosing to be vegan or they were choosing to eat, um, supplement, uh, take supplements every day and hearing about the ways that they were ideologically and religiously connected to what was already kind of happening in Southeast Texas for me was, was hugely, you know, fascinating. Um, and the characters of the ladies that I worked with in the supplements department were so evocative of, of the ideas, right? And, and they actually shaped the ideas that I ended up having in the end for the dissertation. Um, I felt that it, it would be uh, a shame to omit the, that experience. But at the same time, I had spent so much time at work while I was doing my field work that it was like, there was so much there, right? Um, and I hope that I, I I did them proud. A few of them have have read the book, and I'm I'm I've gotten some sort of initial feedback, but I'm I'm hoping to to talk to them more. You know, that was another thing. I I shared a lot of my writing with the people that I was hanging around with in Texas, and got a lot of different responses. Um, uh, in the beginning, one of my ideas was to sort of co-author that chapter with with one of the ladies from the supplements department. That didn't, of course, end up happening. Um, but I hoped that the language and the, again, the, the storytelling forms that I was hearing were um, coming through in the writing. Um, but yeah, that was that was sort of the strange experience of of working that I found myself in. But also, I mean, the the kind of issues that came out, like conspirituality and kind of this like conspiracy theories, but also, I mean, I've never heard of messianic Judaism before. So it was fascinating to read. Oh, it's wild. And and really that those those people are how I kind of organically then started attending, you know, these QAnon events and conspiracy theory events, because, you know, this is a kind of person I think that is, um, I think of it as them as like a seeker type, like someone who's always sort of looking for the next, you know, God, the next uh, ideology. And, um, you know, um, so there's so much happening now, right? Because because I was there in 2014, 2015, leading up to Trump. And so since then, there's been a really interesting development in their own 
kind of ideological attachments. Of course, many of them are Trumpers, but they're also deeply in this QAnon moment or whatever we're in now, a kind of post-QAnon moment. But additionally, their Messianic Judaism, right, because these are people who are not ethnically or culturally Jewish, who come from Southern Baptist backgrounds, who are generally Anglo ethnically. Um, and the moment we're at now with Israel-Palestine uh, is is huge for this community who are like deeply, deeply embedded in this concept of Christian Zionism. And, and, and so um, there's a way in which that community kind of organically led me into some of the really hot button cultural political issues that we're looking at in 2024. Um, and I have to also say it's become for me personally much more difficult to hang around without opening my mouth, you know? Um, and so I, I kind of am tested, I think a little bit as, as like an ethnographer, but I've watched that community, which I thought about already as so radicalized go even more into these these narratives right um so they were really the that chapter of the book is is really the one which has led me down the path of of kind of where i am now and what i teach now and where is field for you now like is it still southeast texas when you work on conspirituality or yeah. i'm sure online a lot of digital material hasn't has come into the play as well. Right. It's mostly been online since COVID. I haven't been able to spend an extended period of time in Southeast Texas since then. I've been back and done little pieces of research. Um, I went back, I went to Austin last summer to try to check out what was going on there with the sort of alt-right developments that are happening in the city, really wild stuff. The place is tr totally transformed. Um, but I take little trips here and there when I can, you know, as a, as a contingent faculty member at now three different universities, I don't have a lot of time. Um, but for instance, I spent a little bit of time in rural Wisconsin trying to do some, some work there. The thing is, is that now this stuff that we've thought of as fringe conspiracy theory thinking has become disturbingly a kind of universal par paradigm, political paradigm. So you see it and you hear it everywhere. I don't have to go to Texas anymore to hear about why, you know, um, taking a vaccine will will give me, uh, you know, whatever disease or or why, you know, um, uh, Thoth, the the god of, uh, you know, the, the Egyptian god is is still with us and a geneticist. I mean, you know, the stories just go on and on. But it's kind of it's it's like everywhere. Um, and not only on the right, I think I think modern conspiracy theory has really done a great job of drawing in the left. And I mean, this kind of brings me to my last question, which also something from your introduction. You talk about how anthropologists sometimes have told you that you shouldn't work with, quote unquote, these people. Can you tell us a bit about that and maybe how you respond? Because, I mean, I do think this kind of work is extremely important as someone who would call themselves an anthropologist of whiteness myself. Yeah. No, I I, I mean, it's, it's kind of the meta, not to like overuse this meta, but it's, it's something that I've learned as a, a kind of lesson 
in the process of trying to do the work and share the work with other anthropologists. You know, we're a very nervous bunch. So it's like I would go to the AAAs or something and read a, a, a talk and there would be people there, anthropologists, you know, senior scholars, you know, from in the field. And their questions at the end would be things like, well, what do we do about these people? And so forth, as though they were looking for some kind of tactic or solution. And I, of course, I don't, I don't have those answers. I don't even know if that's the right question. My suspicion is it really isn't. I, and even if it was the right question, my answer would probably be something along the lines of there's nothing you can do about it, right? Um, even the impulse to do something about it, I would say we would probably need to question. And the irony there is that I learned those lessons from the discipline of anthropology itself. I learned that those questions are authoritarian reactionary questions, you know? And here we are with these nervous liberals who've spent their entire career in Papua New Guinea, right, talking about why it's 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 really problematic that they're even there and so forth, having this really personal, painful experience listening um, about this other form of otherness that they see in their own backyards that they probably deal with when they go to family reunions and so forth. This, I, I, I call it the near other, right? In, in terms of whiteness and the academy and, 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 and the modern subject, the anthropological subject who can't comfortably ensconce this subject far away in all of these classic terms, but is abraded by it, affected by it. And so um, it brings up a lot of questions not only of whiteness, but also class, you know, this thing that we never talk about uh, unless, unless we, 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 we kind of force people to talk about. Um, so in the classroom as well, that's become one of the big contributions for me. You know, we have these beautiful, bright students who show up wanting to talk about anthropology and learn about people in other places and so forth, who have a very natural discomfort with, you know, I'm, I'm speaking mostly predominantly about white American students who hear about these other kinds of people, right? And have a kind of knee jerk reaction. Oh, we, we shouldn't talk about them. You know, that those are the bad people. And so for me, I try as a teacher to um, draw out the, the kind of naturalized hypocrisy in something like that and an impulse like that, you know, and I do these little tests where I'll screen Maya Darren's Divine Horseman showing Haitian voodoo, and then I'll screen um, Holy Ghost people showing American Pentecostal speaking in tongues, and I get the different reactions, and they say, oh, you know, the voodoo, and it was so beautiful, and the movement, and then, you know, oh, these people in the church, and they're led, that's disgusting, and they're letting the snakes bite them, and I say, so tell me about how and why these two films affected us so differently, right? And we start to kind of unpack that question of the bad white, you know, this type that we have um, in our political imagination. Um, and it can, you know, it can be a very effective conversation. And sometimes, you know, uh, I mean, I've been called uh, at conferences, you know, all sorts of names. So um, uh, it's, 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 uh, to put it in the anthro terms, right? It's like a liminal position <laughs> as an anthropologist and a thinker. And But I, I've kind of always preferred those, you know. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, for joining us today uh, and having the 
giving us the chance to talk about your wonderful book, Hard Luck and Heavy Rain, The Ecology of Stories in Southeast Texas that came out of Duke University Press this year, last year, last year, in 2023. Yeah. Armand, thank you. It was an honor. 